welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello and welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet Pod. My name is Dominic Shikitano, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. On today's episode, we speak with Randall Esabate, who is the inaugural Retknitz Family and Urban Coast Institute Endowed Chair in Marine and Environmental Law and Policy, and a professor in the Department of Political Science and Sociology at Monmouth University in West Long Branch, New Jersey. He also serves as the Director of the Institute for Global Understanding at Monmouth and teaches courses in domestic and international environmental law, climate justice, constitutional law, and animal law. Professor Abate is joining us today to talk about the second edition of his book, What Can Animal Law Learn from Environmental Law? The book's first edition, published in 2015 by ELI Press, examines the ways in which animal rights and welfare law can benefit from lessons learned in the environmental law field. In the forthcoming second edition, to be published in July 2020, Professor Abate assembles an experienced team of 36 academics, advocates, and legal professionals from the two legal fields to construct a roadmap for how the animal law movement can learn from environmental law and how the two movements can better coordinate their common objectives. Thank you, Randy, for joining us today to talk about your new book. Thank you very much for having me, Dominic. I'm grateful to ELI for this opportunity. So for those who aren't super familiar with animal welfare or animal rights law, can you begin by talking a bit about its history here in the United States and maybe how it's been historically related to the practice of environmental law? Certainly. I, there's there's three general points I, I would make on this issue. Uh, the, the first regarding animal law is that the field really breaks down into two branches. Uh, one is animal welfare law and the other animal rights law. And animal welfare law seeks to reduce suffering of animals within the systems in which animals are used as a means to an end for human objectives. So those uses would include animal agriculture, the use of animals in medical research, and the use of animals in entertainment. Um, and so an example of an animal welfare initiative would be cage-free eggs. The idea is that we're still using animals for human benefit uh, as the paradigm there, but we're seeking to reduce the suffering of animals within that use of, of animals for human benefit. So by contrast, animal rights law is focused on changing that paradigm of widespread use of animals for human objectives. And so animal rights law seeks to confer legal protections to animals to respect their intrinsic value as sentient beings. And so some uh, prominent efforts underway in this regard are habeas corpus petitions uh, by the Non-Human Rights Project. And these have been filed on behalf of uh, elephants and chimpanzees. Some are in private ownership, some are uh, in, in zoos. And the, the efforts in these cases are seeking to have these animals released from captivity and uh, assigned to live in sanctuaries, free from confinement and from the mental and physical torture that they may endure in their uh, current facilities. Another feature, uh, as, as a second point, regarding animal, animal law is that it's rooted uh, almost exclusively in state law. 
So all 50 states have some form of animal cruelty protections on the books, but there are only three major federal animal laws. And the third point would be that underlying all of animal law is the um, principle that animals are deemed to be property under the law. And this reality is really the focus of animal rights law in that it's seeking to have the law at least recognize that animals are living things that deserve more legal protections than inanimate objects, even though animals may not enjoy the same degree of rights-based liberties that humans enjoy, it's still seeking to confer, confer this notion of respect and dignity for animals, recognizing their intrinsic value and, and that they aren't just things that we own. Um, and so the connection to animal law uh, really struck me, uh, excuse me, the, the, the connection to environmental law that animal law has struck me when I started this book project in 2014. And that was that these two fields really didn't overlap much or collaborate much. Uh, animal law was driven more by this moral imperative to uh, uh, driven by compassion and this uh, desire to respect the dignity of animals. Whereas environmental law was framed in a fundamentally different way very much rooted in science and focused on ways to limit threats to public health caused by various forms of pollution. And so the fact that these two fields really operated on different ideological objectives, I think was a big reason why they often didn't align as much as they should, because they just didn't see one another as allies. And that's a big effort behind the book project to, to help bridge those those opportunities for collaboration and to see how much the, the two movements share. Thank you, Randy, for kind of explaining that relationship a bit more um, and for clarifying the difference between animal rights and animal welfare. That, that wasn't something I was aware of before. I think that's a, it's a really useful distinction. Um, so I guess let's move into talking a bit more about your book. So you said the second edition is really like a second book entirely. It, it includes 12 new chapters and contains about twice as much material as the first edition did. What are some of the new topics you sought to cover in this new iteration of your book? And what subjects or legal areas covered in the first edition have been sort of expanded upon this time around? So as you noted, the, the book does include 12 new chapters that weren't included in the original 17 chapters from the first edition. So among those new chapters, I, I would highlight a few topics. One is climate change. Climate change uh, was addressed in, in the first edition, but there are new chapters that go in different directions on angles for climate change as they are relevant to the book. So one of those chapters talks about climate change mitigation as an opportunity, not only to advance environmental protection, but also um, as a, as a way of addressing wildlife protection uh, at, at the same time as we're trying to address the challenge of, of reducing climate change. And another of those chapters addresses how environmental law is making very effective use of the public trust doctrine, seeking to apply that doctrine more broadly, uh, particularly in the domain of climate change. And uh, that chapter looks to seek to have a broader reading of the public trust doctrine to protect wildlife as well. So the um, other areas that the second edition takes on 
uh, with new chapters are animal testing. This, this was a chapter that I had hoped to include in the first edition and it didn't work out. So I'm very happy to have it in the second edition. Um, and also a big area where environmental law has done very well is enforcement. And so the, um, Second edition adds three new chapters that look at different aspects of how enforcement principles from environmental law can be applied to animal law to advance the objectives of animal law more effectively. So uh, one example of that would be environmental impact assessments have been very effective in as a tool to enhance the protection of the environment. and. Now a movement regarding animal impact assessments is proposed in this chapter, and there's a way to apply those environmental impact assessment principles to the protection procedurally of, of animal impacts. Um, and then building on a landmark case, uh, Massachusetts versus EPA in 2007 at the Supreme Court uh, in the U.S., that was built on this notion of regulatory avoidance, which is this notion that um, the Environmental Protection Agency had a duty, uh, administrative law duty to uh, regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. And then this would be a way to, to address climate change in the US and they failed to uh, fulfill that duty. And so that principle is applied in a new chapter to argue that it could also be applied to USDA and their duty to, to uh, en enhance the protection of, of animals. So one last area that was new to the uh, second edition is a chapter on rights of nature. This is a growing area in environmental law that, that seeks to confer rights-based protections to natural resources. So we're seeing examples around the world of rivers that are being recognized with legal personhood. Um, so that principle is uh, readily applicable and the argument in the chapter is ought to be extended to animals as well. So um, that's, that's been something that has received some attention in, in cases on a piecemeal basis in animal law, but there's a, more of a, a comprehensive effort in this chapter to talk about uh, a doctrine that the, the author calls comprehensive ecosystem personhood. So the idea that both natural resources and animals can be protected under this concept of legal personhood. So significant ecosystems like the Great Barrier Reef or the uh, Amazon rainforest could be considered legal persons that would simultaneously protect resources and animals under that legal framing. Uh, and so the, the second part of your question regarding the areas that have been expanded upon, I, I would say one area that fits that description quite well is that the first edition did address to some degree this notion of legal personhood for animals. Um, but it's really getting much more attention in the second edition across several chapters, but particularly in the rights of na nature chapter that I mentioned, and also in the chapter on standing, which was a, a significant chapter in the first edition, and, and it's been expanded considerably in the second edition to address more of these issues regarding legal personhood as a platform for uh, enhanced standing to sue in the courts. Thank you, Randy. Um, it seems like another big area in the book um, focuses on food law and policy. And how can food law be used as a mechanism to defend the rights of animals? And, and could you give maybe some examples of that? 
Certainly food law is very much at the intersection of these two fields. And uh, the, the book seizes, the second edition of the book seizes on that reality that we're seeing in many ways now in some very interesting developments. And one of those is a line of cases involving deceptive advertising claims. Uh, so essentially consumer protection litigation that's being brought against um, companies involved in, in animal products in some way. So for instance, a, a, a common foundation for these claims is a animal product producer, such as a poultry producer, and the poultry producer is conveying to the public that these chickens that are being sold are humanely raised, or this milk that we produce is coming from a caring dairy. And so these, these uh, claims that the producers are offering about their products ultimately are deceptive because there, there are no standards for evaluating what that really means. And ultimately, surveys are conducted in terms of what the consuming public thinks that means and comparing it to what ultimately is behind the, the production process for that product. So, so for instance, organic products are, are subject to, to USDA organic standards to determine whether a company can say something's organic or not. But when you're saying something is humanely raised, it's really a subjective assessment. And ultimately it could convey something to a consumer that isn't really true about the product. So this is an area where animal law and environmental law can align very well in the sense that these facilities that are producing these animal products ultimately are environmentally intensive and they are certainly a threat to animal welfare. And so when these claims succeed to prevent companies from engaging in traditionally harmful practices and yet claiming that they're kinder to animals, that is ultimately protecting animals and the environment and public health uh, to the extent that these processes involve uh, the addition of hormones and antibiotics uh, to that product, for instance. So that's one area where um, there, these environmental law and animal law interests align very well. And then on a related note there, there's another chapter that looks at that domain from the perspective of the legacy of greenwashing that we saw in the environmental movement and how standards evolved to address how to combat these greenwashing efforts that corporations would make. They would appeal to this conscientious consuming public, just like the humane washing context, trying to convey to the prospective buyers that this is an environmentally conscious product when in fact it isn't. And there was of course a big scandal in that regard involving Volkswagen several years ago. And ultimately standards arose for keeping those greenwashing claims in check, a, a way to evaluate whether they, they were legitimate. Um, and so those standards, the, the chapter argues, ought to be applied to the humane washing context as well. We're seeing very similar realities between these two movements, and it's, a, it's an effective argument to, to make to say that um, the, this is really an apples-to-apples apples sort of uh, comparison when you look at greenwashing and, and humane washing, that the same kind of thing is going on in the same sort of way. And, and it can be regulated in a similar way. 
another dimension that's brought up in a uh, chapter in the book is is lab-grown meat, and this is something that is is very much on the rise in 2020, and is potentially a point to which society will be transitioning soon uh, to to move away from traditional uh, factory farm produced meat. And there are many animal and environmental considerations that need to go into how that transition should unfold. So from an animal welfare perspective, lab-grown meat is, is certainly less harmful from an animal welfare perspective than traditional factory farming, but it's not perfect. There, there is still harvesting of, of animal cells that need to go on to produce the lab-grown meat. Likewise, from an environmental perspective, lab-grown meat is very energy intensive. Um, so yes, it would certainly be less of a carbon footprint overall to transition from factory farms to, to growing meat in labs, but it's nonetheless something that will have uh, an environmental impact and it would need to be regulated carefully for that reason. Um, so I think those are good examples of how these, uh, the area of food law is a way that brings these fields together and, and how the book seeks to align the two fields in a way that can be mutually beneficial. Thank you, Randy. And, and thank you for giving me um, a, a new word in humane washing to, to talk about animal rights and welfare. That I find that comparison to be really effective, um, that parallel. And I, I guess on the topic of sort of, you know, parallels between the animal welfare, um, the animal rights movements and the environmental protection movement, um, you sort of talk a lot in your book about the ways in which these two legal movements can work together to secure some mutual gains and, and meet common goals. Uh, in the future, how do you see kind of like collaboration and knowledge sharing between the fields of animal law and environmental law maybe leading to some victories for both animals and the environment? Well, I think food law is certainly one prominent example in, in that regard that, that I, I just addressed, but I think one that deserves more attention is, is climate change. Uh, climate change is such a pressing issue uh, right now politically and for our society that the, the opportunity for collaboration here is quite strong that, that could really amount to a win-win for both movements. And this is an example how thinking in silos as these movements often do just it, along their separate paths with their own objectives, you might not achieve as much as readily uh, as you would by collaborating. So an example would be factory farming. Uh, these facilities are widely criticized by environmentalists because they are massive sources of pollution and public health impacts. And animal advocates in their silo also criticize factory farms for being uh, animal welfare atrocities. Uh, however, both movements stand to achieve their goals by scaling, having these facilities scaled back and ultimately eliminating them. And one way to have that occur more readily than to work within their own silos is to collaborate on the issue of climate change and how factory farms are significant sources of greenhouse gases, particularly methane, uh, and how that is a significant source of, of contribution to the climate change problem. Uh, and unfortunately, our existing laws are, are much too kind to factory farms, and they do not, uh, they aren't always fully subject to 
environmental protection laws such as the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, National Environmental Policy Act, and so forth. See, these these facilities are are very harmful in terms of their their output of emissions, and they are not heavily regulated under current law. So for these two movements, animal law and environmental law, to coalesce on the climate change issue and really make that a shared objective, it can be uh, something that would yield very positive results sooner than than working in their in their own silos on those uh, on the issue with respect to what their movements are most concerned about. Thank you, Randy. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I want to pivot a bit as we sort of prepare to wrap up our conversation here today and touch a little bit on current events, because I think um, some of what's going on in the world right now is particularly relevant to our conversation today. Um, but the so the Washington Post recently ran a piece by Jonathan Safran Foer on animal welfare and the exploitation of meatpacking and slaughterhouse workers in the age of the coronavirus. Um, and you know he kind of discusses the long-standing treatment of these workers as disposable, basically subhuman labor uh, by the meat industry, and how Trump's invocation of the Defense Production Act uh, in order to order slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants to stay open during the pandemic essentially means uh, that the meat industry is sending human beings to their deaths. Uh, how how does this, and perhaps other current events around COVID nineteen? sort of underscore to you the theme of interconnectedness between animal, environmental, and human rights issues that runs throughout the second edition of your book. This is a very important issue for the book. And unfortunately, the, the book went to press be, before the, the pandemic broke. So that wasn't something I was able to cover in the book's uh, chapters directly, but there's certainly that theme that was already happening in the book, this notion of the interconnectedness across animal, environmental, and, and human rights concerns. So there is a chapter that speaks most directly to that thread of thinking, and that is the, the chapter on uh, what is termed animal socioequality. And, and this is a term that the uh, chapter co-authors of, of that contribution in the book uh, have have essentially framed from the environmental justice movement and applied it to animal protection. So if you think about environmental justice concerns, environmental justice really grew out of this notion that environmental protection isn't just about science and pollution. It's about people. And there was a recognition that there were minority communities that were disproportionately burdened by environmental problems and that we needed to apply more of a human rights lens to thinking about how our environmental laws worked. And so now we're seeing a similar reality reflected in how our animal laws work and have impact. So if you think about what's known as breed specific legislation, uh, this an example of this is banning pit bulls uh, at, at a local level or at a state level. So uh, owners who who would have pit bulls, they, they, they move to a town and ultimately those, those, those dogs would be destroyed if they are ultimately found within those city's limits. And what studies have shown is that there's more likely to be breed specific legislation in cities that have high minority populations. Uh, and that is a connection that's very similar to what was 
detected in the environmental justice movement, which is whenever you see undesirable environmentally burdensome facilities like medical waste facilities and, and landfills, uh, heavy industry, you almost always would find minority communities on the fringes of those, those areas. And so there's connections that are taken from environmental justice now into the animal movement and, and that notion of the, the human rights dimension of fields that are otherwise not focused on humans, the animal law movement and the environmental movement it's it's bringing that uh, those interconnections to to light more fully. So I think the the unfortunate reality ultimately um, with animal law is that it's very difficult to achieve effective animal protections the right way, as, as I would put it, based on their intrinsic value. What we ultimately see is that the best way to achieve protections for animals is like what we were able to do with environmental protection. Ultimately, we had a great successful boom of federal environmental laws in the 1970s because those laws were driven by this need to protect humans from the threat of pollution that we were causing. And so animal law is still driven by this moral imperative that is very hard to get behind in, in Congress and to get effective federal legislation passed. And ultimately, the best way to get animal protection is to link it to some human concern. So if we go back to your point about the threats to uh, workers in factory farms during the COVID crisis, those, those factory farm workers absolutely deserve our attention and legal protection. But ultimately, what happens is a, an unintended benefit to animals will come out of that effort. The idea of a focus on protecting the factory farm workers will ultimately improve the lives of animals in the factory farms as well. To the extent attention is brought to these issues, the ultimate goal is to scale back and ultimately phase out factory farms, which would be a win for the environment for the workers at these facilities and certainly for animals who that are slaughtered at these facilities. Well, thank you, Randy, for joining us today uh, to talk about your book and the relationship between animal law and environmental law more broadly, as well as the implications for vulnerable human populations. Thank you, Dominic, it's been a pleasure. And again, Randy's book, What Can Animal Law Learn from Environmental Law? The second edition will be published in July 2020 with ELI Press. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.